This week on Policy, Guns and Money, Brendan Nicholson speaks with Senator David Fawcett about the inquiry into the implications of COVID-19 for Australia's foreign affairs, defence and trade. And so even though you think you might have a diversity of supply, in actual fact, there is a very concentrated failure mode in that supply chain. Michael Shoebridge speaks to Dr. Oriana Skyler Mastro about US and China approaches to Taiwan. So the biggest threat, I think, is that the day that Xi Jinping decides and is confident that his military can do this successfully. And so the bad news is at that point, it will be very difficult to deter him. Dr. Nathan Attrell is joined by Maya Wang to get an update on the situation in Hong Kong. Um, and so a loss of that platform would be devastating um, for the developments in Hong Kong in the sense that Hong Kong people will truly be marginalized and, and not heard. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In May 2020, the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade adopted an inquiry into the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic for Australia's foreign affairs, defence and trade. The inquiry's report was released in December 2020 and Chair of the Joint Standing Committee, Senator David Fawcett, joins Brendan Nicholson to discuss some of the key findings and recommendations for government. Senator Fawcett, it's great to have you here. As a former military test pilot, um, you were probably an ideal person to chair the parliamentary inquiry by the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade into the implications of the COVID-19 pandemic for Australia's foreign affairs, defence and trade. In your foreword to this very substantial report, you warned that the lessons from the pandemic are not primarily about health. Given that more than 2.5 million people have died in the pandemic so far, you clearly do not say that lightly. And the other concerns you identified are clearly very serious. And what was your approach to the inquiry and what are the other concerns that you uncovered? So, Brendan, my uh, observation up front would be that clearly the health impacts are serious uh, for those who suffered, for their families, the impact it's had on the economy, etc. But my experience as an experimental test pilot and coming from a systems engineering perspective is that the symptom which manifests, which draws people's attention to the fact there is an issue is often the outcome of a number of underlying causes, which can be multifactorial. And what I've seen over a number of years in government policy is that often policies are developed by one department. Sometimes we get some collaboration, but the implementation sometimes doesn't achieve the outcomes because people aren't actually addressing root causes. And so the contention here is that whilst the health impacts are great and are serious, as in they're significant and as serious, particularly for those concerned, there are many lessons we take from this that affect other things. And so one of the key lessons from a foreign affairs perspective is that many of the assumptions we make about the primacy of the global norms, the rules-based order, is that nation states, unless they are rogue states, will abide by those global norms. And what we have seen throughout the pandemic is that when faced with a crisis that's affecting the, the health and welfare, uh, or in fact the life of people within nations, uh, they revert to a very nationalistic view. And sometimes, uh, whether through intent or capacity, 
will deviate from the agreements that have been in place, whether they be bilateral or multilateral agreements. Uh, the second fact is that I think it has opened many people's eyes to the fact that the finished product that we buy in the supermarket or governments procure is reliant on very long, quite often very complex supply chains. And even though we think a supply is predominantly coming from one nation, uh, pharmaceuticals would be a good example, what the inquiry and similar inquiries that have occurred in the US and the UK have highlighted is that often there is a single failure point. So the APIs that the initial inputs into pharmaceuticals nearly all come out of China. And so even though you think you might have a diversity of supply, in actual fact, there is a very concentrated failure mode in that supply chain. Do you think we're doing enough to deal with these issues? There have been a number of uh, things instigated globally. Uh, so you've seen just since the Biden administration was elected, a number of executive orders, uh, even this last week, uh, one signed about supply chain criticality for semiconductors. Prime Minister Johnson in the UK has likewise looked at supply chain issues. The Henry Jackson Society has done some work about the vulnerability of the five eyes to supply chain uh, failures. And here in Australia over the years, we have done work. So we have the Critical Infrastructure Centre. We have a number of bodies, so the Supply Chain Resilience Initiative that's part of the Sovereign Manufacturing or the Modern Manufacturing Plan, the National Resilience Task Force, the Critical Infrastructure Resilience Strategy, all of these things, but run by different departments with a different focus. And there's not obviously a link to the national security implication across all of these areas. Uh, so, yes, there are steps being taken. What this report is calling for is a joined-up approach, both across federal departments, but even between federal and state governments, but also then a linkage of the consequential amendments that would be needed in different portfolios. So, the report goes into some detail about the fact that if we can't trust a supply chain that's in the commercial just-in-time replenishment market, which is where we have driven over the last couple of decades because it tends to be cheaper, then we either need to very deliberately engage with trusted like-minded nations. And the report argues there on the basis of lived examples during COVID that we need a government-to-government -government framework around commercial agreements to increase the transparency and reliance of some of those supply chains. But then if we are going to do things domestically, we have to move away from the old model of just giving Australian industry grants to say, try and become more competitive and we might buy from you, to say, well, if, if we've identified that you are part of a critical national system and your input is essential to that supply chain keeping that system that keeps us a free, prosperous and secure nation working, then we will buy from you. And it's actually changing the Commonwealth procurement rules, putting in that link with a identified critical national system and a value proposition that a desk officer in a department who's operating under the accountable authority instructions uh, that they are bound by can go, I'm about to buy something. It's been identified as a critical input to a critical national system. Therefore, I'm allowed to preference an Australian company within bounds in terms of risk cost schedule and the other things that, that drive value for money. Whereas at the moment, that's often a failure point in that the desk officer, despite government policy intent, isn't actually free 
to make those decisions. One of the things that has actually driven the manufacturing bases of, of a vast number of countries around the world to China is cost. Now, is that something we can get around? When the pandemic struck, you had people saying things like, very confidently, you know, the Chinese economy will be wrecked by this, and that certainly does not appear to have happened. And also, we will have to diversify and move to other supply sources. Now, that's very easily said, but actually, how do you actually make it happen when they can produce lower-cost goods of a fairly reasonable quality? The argument, again, has to look at it from a holistic perspective. So if we take, uh, let's use PPE because it's, it's relevant to COVID, and let's look at respirators, at P2, P3, or N95 masks. The price difference between an Australian manufacturer, uh, what's being produced now by Detmold, Aspen are producing, and what is available out of other nations is not significant. But if you look at the net cost of the price we paid to get scarce stocks, the money we've had to put in to rapidly help re-establish some kind of manufacturing capability, the above-the-odds price we've perhaps had to pay to get things like the spun bond or melt bone product that's essential uh, as, as an input to those masks. I would argue that if you did that analysis, our price per mask is significantly higher than what we think we've paid. Uh, and so the argument the report has is that if something like that is critical, and if you look at the Italian health system as an example, one of the reasons it really came under pressure and came close to collapse was the number of nurses and physicians who were dying or becoming extremely ill because they didn't have adequate supplies of correctly fitted uh, respirators. So that becomes a critical input to your health system. So if we need that and we've invested the money into companies here, the last thing we should be doing is allowing our departments to go back to their overseas supply chains because they're five cents cheaper per mask as opposed to saying, we'll actually buy a certain number, an offtake agreement that gives the Australian industry the ability to survive, to be able to invest in research and development. You know, for example, there's already a lot of work going into how can we have an alternative to spun bond as the basis for the filtration material in masks. But if we just go back to purely buying from overseas, then all that work will be wasted. There'll be millions of dollars of private sector and taxpayer money wasted. We won't see that innovation. And so the next time we have a crisis, whether that's a zoonotic pandemic or something else that requires that kind of PPE, we will be likewise vulnerable and we have to factor that cost in. So part of the value proposition that our procurement rules should allow for is if it's critical to our, the security of our a critical national system like the health system, then we will allow the procurement officers to favour an Australian company as part of a planned program as opposed to project by project, procurement by procurement, to establish a sovereign capability because in the long run, that is cheaper for Australia. What you're talking about basically involves major changes in attitude. Now, that may well be happening already, but it also involves comprehensive structural changes in, in the way we do things. Some purchasing officer in a government department might well listen to you and think this is a wonderful idea and that makes perfect common sense, but he or she is not going to be able to do anything until there's a, a major change in approach. How do you achieve that? 
Well, it's partly through having the policy, and I'll use defence as an example. The 2016 Defence Industry Policy Statement actually outlined an approach where we said we have to identify what our sovereign industry capability needs are. So the focus was not on what can we do through defence procurement to provide opportunities for industry. The question really should be what do we as a sovereign nation need industry to be capable of doing for us to make sovereign decisions? Having identified that, what the policy called for was for procurements to then go, if we're buying photocopying paper, it's not a sovereign capability, we'll go to the cheapest possible supplier who's going to give it to us because it's it's not essential, it's easily replaceable. But if it's a critical capability, then we will say that's been identified and we will buy uh, and make our procurements help sustain that capability. Now, Defence has been about three years late in identifying the sovereign industry capability implementation plans they're still not directly linked into our procurement decisions. Uh, and so you see some outcomes that I've been quite critical about, for example, the batteries for the future submarines, uh, where some of the early work after the 2016 dips uh, identified that for a diesel electric submarine, the battery is part of a critical system that should be part of our sovereign capability, which would indicate we should have contracted Pacific Marine batteries uh, who've now, by the way, won contracts with Sweden, Canada and the UK. So they're clearly competitive and from a quality and performance perspective, world leading, that should have been part of our procurement contracts. So we need to align the identification of critical capabilities, sovereign is what the word defence uses, with our procurement. And I think when we do that across the board from our health system to our fuel system, the Henry Jackson Society in the UK has given a reasonable outline of perhaps what a range of systems would be that we would consider critical to a nation's security and sovereignty, then I think we'll be on a path to doing that. So we're moving towards it, but not as quickly as I would like. You touched on something close to our hearts, the, um, the Pacific Marine Battery. Is that likely to be used in the attack-class submarine eventually? I believe it will. I believe it will prove to be superior, but what's happening at the moment is Naval Group is running a competitive uh, evaluation between a Greek design and manufactured battery, uh, which they contend would be manufactured here if it was chosen, and the PMB design. I think PMB, given their recent success in a range of international contracts, uh, will probably come out the, the winner in that, so I expect them to be used. But to my mind, that should never have been in doubt. David Fawcett, thanks very much. Thanks, Brenda. Dr. Oriana Schuyler-Mastro is Centre Fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spoli Institute for International Studies. She speaks to Michael Shoebridge about China's thinking around Taiwan and China's growing confidence when it comes to foreign policy. Well, Oriana, it's great to talk to you, particularly on the back of the testimony you, you gave just recently in the US. Great to have you in Australia. Taiwan is our topic here today. I know the testimony you just gave to the US Economic Security Review Commission uh, was quite compelling and it had some very different assessments to conventional wisdom on Taiwan. You started by looking at the assumption that the thing that would precipitate a Chinese attack on Taiwan was an action by Taiwan you know, the classic thing of some kind of declaration of independence. Right. Analysts have focused for so long on that being the thing that might precipitate a conflict over Taiwan. But you say the assessment should change, needs to change urgently. What is the correct way of looking at the conditions for an attack on Taiwan? 
Well, I think part of the previous concern to go to the conventional wisdom was not only that Taiwan would declare independence or do something to precipitate this conflict, but also even lower level actions on the part of the United States or Australia. If we got too close to Taiwan, that somehow this could spark a crisis or a conflict. And and what I argue looking at Chinese thinking, Chinese behavior, the development of certain military capabilities, is it seems pretty obvious that they are very much geared towards building the capability to take Taiwan by force. And of course, if Taiwan declares independence tomorrow, they will move tomorrow. But short of that, they really want to choose the time and place that they will use this military force so that it's the most effective and most successful from their point of view. So the biggest threat, I think, is that the day that Xi Jinping decides and is confident that his military can do this successfully. And so the bad news is at that point, it will be very difficult to deter him. The good news is before that point, I think we have much more room to maneuver because the Chinese, of course, they have to respond uh, you know, in statements or other type of means when countries get closer to Taiwan, but they're not going to let those smaller slights derail their timeline. And so I think we have much more room on the lower levels to maneuver. Yes, I, I think your assessment makes sense to me from a Beijing decision maker point of view, because Z is a risk taker. We've seen that with Hong Kong. Uh, he's moved big and fast on Hong Kong in a way that most people didn't think he would uh, and didn't predict. And he's been rewarded when he's taken these big risks. So right. for him, you know, as part of being in that great panoply of Chinese communist leaders in history, uh, reunifying, as he puts it, Taiwan with the mainland uh, is one of the crowning achievements. And as a risk taker, if he senses the capabilities there in the PLA, that could be the trigger. So I think part of it, we can see Xi Jinping as a risk taker. We can also see an alternative viewpoint, which is that the risks are actually much lower than, than we think they are. So that maybe he is accurately assessing that the risks are not quite as high. So in the Taiwan situation, you often hear in Washington two conventional wisdoms about China and Taiwan, which I, I tend to disagree with. The first is China can wait forever on this. The thing they want to avoid the most is a conflict with the United States. And I would have said that was true 10 years ago. But now that there are situations under which they could prevail at an acceptable cost against the United States, think of that benefit. Not only do you get Taiwan, but you get to beat the United States. Mm. I, I think people kind of underestimate that. And then on the cost side, people in Washington sometimes say, well, that's the end of it for China. You know, they take Taiwan by force. They will be economically isolated. Everyone will cut off diplomatic ties with them. Uh, and that's too high of a cost. But I think she is accurately reading the tea leaves on this and saying, it's probably not going to go that way. Based on how countries have behaved, it's unlikely that he's going to have to pay the international costs that many mm. might produce. Well, that's interesting. Again, I think Hong Kong would give him encouragement there. Right. You know, the obvious oppression uh, and abuse of Hong Kong citizens with the new national security law is graphic and everybody sees it. It's not at the scale of Xinjiang, but it's graphic and explicit. And yet uh, not many countries are doing much about that. So uh, maybe the calculation around Tiananmen Square is, well, it was horrible for a short period of time, but the world seemed to get over it. And now they need us so much more. So I think you're right. We've got to think about his risk calculation mm -hmm. 
One thing I'm interested in is what might change that risk calculation. And this is where I think the importance Beijing is placing on further isolation of Taiwan needs to make us realise that every step we can take to integrate Taiwan into multilateral organisations and normalise relations with Taiwan, that means the stakes get higher for Beijing. What do you think about that as a line of approach? I do think that is the most effective direction to go. So when you focus just on U.S. military capabilities, I think deterrence by punishment is very difficult. Uh, and that's just the idea that the United States could threaten enough pain on Beijing uh, in terms of kinetic, you know, military maneuvers, destruction of property, that they would think even if they won the war, it wasn't worth it. I think that's very difficult. So on the U.S. side, we're really focused on deterrence by denial, which is developing certain military capabilities to prevent them. You know, even if they want to make it over to Taiwan, there's so much firepower in the strait they cannot physically get there. Now, a lot of those force posture changes, while they would be effective, are very escalatory. And they take a lot of time to develop. In the meantime, I actually think what is a more effective deterrent for Beijing is the idea that many countries would respond, even militarily, and if not militarily, at least with economic punishments and, and a general long-term change in their position towards Beijing. So China's main goal is the road to rejuvenation, right, of the Chinese nation to regain their position as a great power and the dominant power in Asia. They're not willing to sacrifice their rise for Taiwan right now, right? If that, they don't have to make the decision, they won't make it. Just upsetting the United States does not sacrifice that rise. Mm. But if the whole, if you upset the whole region to the degree that then you are, not only is there some sort of military coalition against you, but I think even more so an economic coalition against you, that's enough. And so yes. if um, we're unwilling at this point to be close to Taiwan in any way, you know, what's the message that Beijing gets, you know, then, of course, an economic coalition of sanctions or anything. Mm. Abusive forces and in system. fact, it's interesting, isn't it? Because opposite to the conventional wisdom, moves to reverse the isolation of Taiwan might be the most effective deterrent. So rather than seeing it as precipitating a conflict, it is, I think, one of the things most likely to change Beijing's risk calculation in a good way. And, and I agree with that. A lot of people are concerned about provoking China, but doing something provocative is not necessarily something escalatory. And when it comes to uh, Taiwan, the question I often ask myself when I'm looking at different strategic options is the following. Would you rather have a China that's deterred and unhappy or a China that's undeterred and happy. Because mm. in the end, China does not want to be deterred. So, of course, any action that any country takes, the United States or Australia, that shapes their calculus in a way that constrains their ability to use force, they will be unhappy about that. Yes, but I, I think that's interesting because I think that's you can see the hypervigilance around relationships with Taiwan. And I, I think that is a signal that, it affects their risk calculation. Yeah, absolutely. So in the end, when they show us they're unhappy, it shows that we are effectively deterring. Mm. Do you think that the... I, I was very interested when you said, yes, taking Taiwan, certainly part of this rejuvenation of, of China. Uh, that's the, the narrative out of the Communist Party. But the strategic consequences, I think you're absolutely right that doing it despite the US that would have a profound strategic impact. Is that as well understood in the US as it should be? 
I think for the most part, a lot of people in the United States that maybe aren't so focused on the military balance of power have this idea that, you know, the United States military is still in such a superior position that the only thing that we have to worry about is signals of U.S. resolve, right? If China is convinced the United States will be involved, then China will not take military action. And again, I think this was the case in the 90s and probably in the early 2000s uh, through probably until the military reforms began a couple of years ago. But now you ask Chinese military members who talk about using force against Taiwan, well, what are you going to do if the United States intervenes? And their viewpoint is, well, we can win. So the idea that U.S. intervention alone, the threat of intervention alone will deter China, I think that ship has sailed. Right. So that's no longer the case. The conventional deterrent is not strong enough for mm. that. I think that the, the point that interests me in this whole narrative around Taiwan is the Beijing line that, well, Taiwan matters more to us than anybody else. But the profound strategic impact of China taking Taiwan, getting hold of that high technology manufacturing base, getting hold of that strategic piece of real estate, showing that they can snuff out a 24 million person democracy while the world stands by. Far more profound, I think, than Tiananmen Square or Hong Kong. I think you have to, people have to ask what their assumptions are about China, right? We can have a disagreement about this. Do you think there has been relative peace, prosperity, and stability in Asia, you know, for the past 40 years because China is inherently a peace loving country? Uh, benign and peace-loving country, or do you think the presence of the U.S. military has something to do with it? And as someone who reads a lot of Chinese writings, Chinese military doctrine, I will tell you that their sole focus is on the U.S. military, and that suggests to me that they would act differently if the United States had a different role in the region. If China uses force against Taiwan and the United States does not come to Taiwan's aid, that's the end of the credibility of U.S. alliance commitments. If the United States comes to Taiwan's aid, but other allies and partners do not support U.S. efforts, that could also be the end of the alliance system. And if the United States does not prevail, that is the end of the U.S. role in the region. And then the region is going to be left with a powerful, confident China that no longer feels like it has to consider the viewpoints of other countries when oh. it makes decisions. Ariana, I know we're out of time, but I, I want to thank you for breaking down some of those assumptions that people might be holding in their heads around Taiwan, Beijing, the PLA, US military and, and the US decision making. I think you're right about what you've said about the stakes. And I think what you're telling us is all about the urgency of what each of us do with Taiwan and thinking through these credible scenarios, being prepared to reverse isolation and think in creative ways about deterring China. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. The controversial Hong Kong national security law came into effect on 30th of June, 2020, after a series of large-scale pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong in 2019. Earlier this month, 47 activists were arrested under the new law. Human Rights Watch China senior researcher Maya Wang joins Dr. Nathan Attrell to discuss the arrests and the impacts of the law on Hong Kong so far. Thank you for joining us, Maya. Um, just a couple of questions on the topic of Hong Kong and some of the more recent developments. At the most recent session of the National People's Congress in Beijing, that body announced it would enact a law allowing only patriots 
to serve on district councils in Hong Kong. What might be some of the likely consequences of this new law for democracy in Hong Kong? Well, pretty much um, right now, um, the Chinese government has laid down various similar rules. Previously, it was about the that only those that are loyal to Beijing can serve on the um, on the legislative council, and so this is kind of follows onto that. And basically, that means that the people who support democracy can't be in kind of leadership position, can't have a public uh, platform in Hong Kong. And although these legislative council or district councils didn't have much power in the past. Um, the Legislative Council has a bit more, but they had been kind of important public forums to galvanize the public on various issues. Um, and so a loss of that platform would be devastating um, for the developments in Hong Kong in the sense that Hong Kong people will truly be marginalized and, and not heard in, uh, public in making public policies. Uh, at the end of February this year, Hong Kong authorities charged 47 leaders of the city's pro-democracy movement with conspiracy to commit subversion under the national security law that was enacted last July. Is this a new turning point in the saga? Um, what makes this time different than other moments when activists have been charged with such things? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're very right to say that you know, it's not the first time activists have been charged for various crimes now in Hong Kong. It's become a new normal, um, sadly. Um, but having said that, previous to the enactment of the national security law, um, activists were generally being charged with crimes under the public order ordinance, mm -hmm. which carried, um, which is um, the idea that the law basically um, uh, punishes unlawful assembly um, and is a violation of um, kind of international law, the right to assembly, and so on. But but the public order ordinance um, prescribes quite low uh, penalty, and usually people um, tend to be um, given maybe weeks in prison at most. Um, the national security law, on the other hand, has very long sentences. Um, we are talking about like subversion that can carry essentially life imprisonment. Um, the national security law also usher in a whole host of kind of um, essentially a, a fundamental rewiring of Hong Kong society that goes beyond just who gets kind of charged under the national security law. So the fact that these 47 are being charged with national security crimes is part of that bigger package of changing Hong Kong. The label of subversion also very fundamentally changes how we consider protest activities. Instead of protests being kind of a normal part of, of life in Hong Kong for, for many, many years, now the, um, the authorities are saying that protests, organizing political activities, participating in a poll is itself an act of subversion. So it has not only, um, it's not only about just the, the 47 individuals who are um, who represent broad spectrum of Hong Kong's pro-democratic movements, um, the, the, the fact that they could be facing many years in prison, that is itself a, a problem, but that the very labeling of these activities as an act of subversion uh, is significantly moving um, the red lines in Hong Kong, signaling to the rest of the population that um, the activities, the way of life we were used to, are no longer um, uh, allowed. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the protests in Hong Kong were one of the, the biggest stories in international news um, in 2019, and that sort of got blown out of the water by a lot of things by COVID in 2020. Um, have democracy activists significantly had changed their tactics um, in light of both the new national security law that came in in the middle of last year and also COVID-19? Definitely. I mean, COVID-19 essentially um, coincided with a period of time in Hong Kong where the protests were somewhat um, winding down a bit. Um, I mean, that's natural for people protesting for essentially six straight months um, of 2019. Um, And since then, the pandemic restrictions have also enabled the authorities to impose further restrictions on um, the protest activities. Um, in the past, you can apply for um, permission to protest, and the government has quite conveniently used um, the pandemic as, an, uh, as the reason or as justification to deny even kind of like peaceful protests. Um, they were allowed in the past. Activists have tried to go around that restriction by saying that, well, we we are implementing these these precautions ourselves by making sure there's no more than like certain number of people. Um, but um, the government has not really allowed these protests to happen. Um, essentially, Hong Kong has handled the pandemic really well. Uh, so uh, a lot of these restrictions on protests are really just about damping down the um, dampening the, the pro-democracy movement that was taking place from 2019. Um, as to the national security law, it's kind of adding um, another layer uh, that has dampened the, the protest activities. Um, now, instead of um, being potentially arrested and being um, penalized uh, or, or subject being charged with other crimes that I just described, facing weeks in prison uh, or even months. Now people are facing a much stiffer penalty, uh, years in prison or longer, decades in prison. So I would say that um, I think the mood there for ordinary people, lots of people are becoming much more cautious, both online and offline uh, in their activities. Sure. Are there any groups within, or interest groups within Hong Kong that still support this crackdown, that these new laws from Beijing? Where is Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, where is she drawing her support? I think that there is, I think public opinion polls um, uh, have shown that there are about 12% of people in Hong Kong that actually support the Hong Kong government. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, you have uh, so you have that kind of group of supporters, um, and then you have uh, some other people in the middle who kind of feel that, well, I disagree with the government, but I also disagree with the protests. I don't like kind of that protests uh, going on for months and it's inconvenient. Um, so, um, I can imagine that the, this group could be also supportive of kind of measures to kind of put order back into Hong Kong, kind of quote unquote, um, and generally find it desirable to support the government just for convenience sake. But I would say that probably a large majority of Hong Kong, uh, over 60, 70, 80% of people are very, very angry. Mm-hmm. Very, very sad um, that the Hong Kong they knew are no longer what it is now and that they have to watch their words. 
but also more the sense of anger that these people being charged right now are essentially the future of Hong Kong. They're young people. They have poured their efforts to make Hong Kong a better place. Um, lots of people consider what's going on not uh, an implementation of the rule of law, but a subversion of, of the law that we have kind of the judicial system that we have so cherished for a very long time. So the sense of injustice is definitely quite prevalent, I think, in Hong Kong. So this month, Hong Kong pro-democracy leader Ted Hui Chirfang relocated to Australia um, on a tourism visa. He said he's not yet going to claim asylum. But other activist leaders from Hong Kong have already left the city um, and, some have, and some that have stayed in Hong Kong are now in custody. What does the future look like for the pro-democracy movement when its leaders are sort of either going into custody or leaving the, the leaving Hong Kong? Can the movement survive? Does it need leadership? Right, exactly. Um, the the pro-democracy movement has evolved to kind of a leaderless movement, as we know. Um, so in some ways you can say, well, it doesn't quite need leaders, or maybe it's better without without um, leadership. It has certain flexibility, but it also has certain um, limitations um, as well. And um, the leaderless movement is in large part um, a, a survival adaptive skill to prevent, because, because people are be becoming, um, it, it's becoming dangerous to be a leader. Having said all of this, I think that the tenacity of people in Hong Kong, their skills um, in many different ways, will and their cosmopolitanism uh, around the world, speaking good English, would present an interesting challenge, I think, for the party um, internationally and at home in Hong Kong. Um, you have Tibetans and Uyghurs who have suffered long decades of repression, um, but arguably they are also more isolated geographically and in many different ways. Um, Hong Kong people and Hong Kong um, still is very, very different. And I'm not sure the Chinese government's playbook that develops in mainland China in areas like Tibet and Xinjiang are going to be replicable to the same extent in Hong Kong. So I think the pro-democracy movement both at home and uh, around the world are going to throw up some major challenges um, for Beijing and it's going to cost um, Beijing. And I think it will survive and it will be interesting to see how these different ideas evolve over time um, in terms of transnational pro-democracy organizing. Thank you very much for talking to me, Maya Wang from Human Rights Watch. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Nathan. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back with another episode next week.